Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends. Nice to see everyone. I'm sure we're all showing up in very different ways today. I'm sure some of us are feeling healthy and some of us may be feeling sick. Some of us may be feeling clear-headed and some of us may be grappling with some confusions. Some of us may have stability, maybe even too much stability. And some of us might have a lot of transitions coming up, perhaps even too many transitions. And I just want to hold all that together as we learn together and explore our minds, but keep our hearts open together as we uh, discuss together all these issues, because life is so full. My gosh, sometimes it feels numb, shockingly numbing because we have an emotional block. And other times it just feels like it's coming from all directions, the smells and the and the sounds and the feelings and the worries and the excitements and everything else. And um, I just want you to know that whatever you're holding, I am in the tiniest way a partner in holding it with you. And I think hopefully we all are together as well, so. So friends, uh, we're going to talk about John Locke today. John Locke is an incredibly important thinker. And let's start with a poll question around just one of the many facets of ideas that we're going to explore with John Locke. Where do human rights emerge from? From God? From political agreements? There are no real claims to human rights. Of course, that doesn't exhaust all of the options, but those are the most three common views. Some, some think that God gives human rights. Some think that it's merely the United Nations or the United States or some convention that kind of declares these things. And some think that, yeah, maybe we should argue for them, but there's no real epistemological, there's no real foundational claim to human rights. So let's cast our vote and let's see our results here. Okay, completely split. 40% here think that human rights come from God. 30% think it comes from political agreements or arrangements. And 30% think there are no real claims to human rights. If you have a different view that wasn't at all encapsulated by those three, please write it in the chat so we can learn from your view um, as to where you think human rights emerge from. Okay, friends, do we learn things from nature or from nurture? We've all heard this debate. Are ideas such as love, justice, truth, and beauty held instinctively in all humans? Or must they be acquired through experience? Is morality universal or is it just cultural? John Locke was one of the most influential thinkers of the Enlightenment. 
and is even considered by many to be the father of liberalism. Of course, by liberalism, I don't mean vote Democrat rather than Republican. Liberalism as a foundation to all of kind of Western government, certainly to U.S. Uh, government. He was a British empiricist, along with George Berkeley and David Hume. We won't. We will not explore Berkeley in his fullness, most likely, but we will most certainly explore Hume. He influenced Voltaire, who we will explore, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who we will also explore, as well as American revolutionaries. His concept of natural rights was adopted most famously by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. The period he helped initiate was called the Enlightenment because it was a time when a new light source was found through reason. Right Prior to the Enlightenment, light was understood to be something beyond us, to be encountered or discovered. But now we see there's a new source of light that is emerging through human reason. However, the commitment to a reason also led to a rejection of previous places where the light of knowledge was previously thought to be found, such as tradition, authority, and revelation. Right, Those are the three primary sources of light that are going to be displaced or disrupted, as, as we say today. Tradition, authority, and revelation. Further, the goal of enlightenment was not just to expand human knowledge, but also to affirm the belief that knowledge founded on reason enables human freedom. Reason was not limited only to intellectual matters but could best guide how human beings should live each day, right? If I have a big life decision, I don't go to my authority figure, like my priest or like my rabbi or my imam, and ask them what to do and and follow their guidance. Rather, I need to think. I need to problem solve, right? Today, people, um, liberal people who may have displaced that, may have replaced that, Maybe a friend is an authority figure. Maybe a therapist is an authority figure. Um, Perhaps there is a human need for authority. The Enlightenment intended to free humanity from all forms of compulsion so that human beings could reach their full potential. In the realm of ethics, the Enlightenment was no longer focused on an objective, ideal good that all humans ought to pursue. As we saw with the Greeks earlier, the Greeks thought there was a universal good we should all pursue, but rather saw the good as linked to individual happiness, something that could vary from person to person. The good life intertwines the ethical life with the happy life. For Locke, like other significant figures in the Enlightenment, science was central And he believed we needed to demonstrate our truths with scientific proof. Consequently, Locke used an atomistic model of knowledge, not only for the hard sciences, but also for how he understood human behavior and society at large. All things in Locke's thinking could be broken down and analyzed, right? He's not a zoom out guy, but a zoom in guy. This was known as the, I'm going to mispronounce this, 
cor- corpuscular theory. And for, forgive me, I don't know why I struggle with that. Corpuscu- corpuscular theory. I'm going to just write it in the chat and you'll understand it better than my poor pronunciation. In that everything in the world is made up of par- of particles called corpuscles. Is that how you pronounce the word? <laughs> Gary, you're one of our doctors here. <laughs> yeah. The qualities that we might observe in objects such as color were understood to be a feature of these corpuscles. What made Locke a revolutionary thinker, though, was that he rejected Platonism by arguing that humans have no innate knowledge. Big, big idea in Plato, as we saw, right? That's part of what um, corpuscular, corpuscular, thank you. Um, Yes, Darren, one of our other doctors, thank you. Yes, so Plato, big mystic, and thinks that we need to only go deeper inwards towards our innate knowledge. Locke rejects this completely instead, was a committed empiricist and believed that all we know comes through our senses rather than uh, than our innate sense of knowing. We have senses that encounter the world and through that encounter with the world, through experience, we come to learn. Locke was skeptical of any kind of metaphysical knowledge at all because he believed that all we could know must emerge from our perception in the world. Any abstract ideas we might conceive of were ultimately derived from the sensory input we receive from our experience of the world. In this kind of philosophy, there are no universal ideas such as love, justice, truth, and beauty. Locke's position was informed by the fact that he lived in a time when Europeans began to have knowledge of other cultures around the world, right? We start to understand that there's Eastern thought. We start to talk with native people. We start to encounter people from Africa's more deeply in a way that they're not just written off as barbarians. I mean, certainly many did, but we start to be intrigued by by how people raised in different cultures have very different understandings of the universal goods. With this came the awareness that certain features of morality Europeans assumed to be innate were in fact lacking in some parts of the world. For for example, some cultures don't even believe in God at all. This was surprising. In fact, one of the the reasons travel is so important, and by travel I don't mean staying in a fancy hotel and going to ancient sites and ancient museums, nothing wrong with that. By travel I mean encountering people, being in dialogue with people in their natural habitat. It's great to go to museums and stay in fancy hotels, but there's another form of travel where we actually meet people and humble ourselves because they don't speak our language um, in the ways that we do. And we actually learn from them um, and broaden our sense of what the human experience can entail. While Descartes, along with Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, trusted only the mind. Remember this in Descartes? I think that was last week, right? He trusts only the mind because it was God-given for Descartes. Locke believed the actual God-given source of knowledge was the senses. So how interesting, right? God puts something in us, but what is that? Is that this innate knowledge? Is that the mind? Or is that our senses? And what is it we can ultimately trust within us? Do we trust our gut? Do we trust our reason? Do we trust 
that what I see is what I see and what I hear is what I hear and what I feel is what I feel. Knowledge wasn't innate or deduced by reason, but something that could only be learned from experience. The mind for Locke began as a tabula rasa, a blank slate which would later be filled with empirical knowledge. The process of reasoning that Locke advocated for would come to be known as abduction, meaning that we infer judgments based upon available evidence gathered by sensory experience. Although it might seem far-fetched to us, Locke believed we can't know what we haven't experienced. That's an important point for him, because one aspect of education is to try to convince students that something is true that they haven't actually experienced. Locke's not so interested in that, right? For someone to, to learn, they need to experience that truth rather than just be taught it. What do we make of Locke's thought as Jews, or for those of us who identify with Judaism, that is? For one thing, it is positive that he embraced some notion of religious tolerance. He felt that individuals could be free to pursue the truth of their beliefs as best as they are able without any coercion by the state. In his eyes, religious coercion was counterproductive because it would eventually lead to rebellion by those who held different beliefs. Locke also questioned whether religious beliefs could be coerced at all. Since belief is something that is internal to a person, how could the state in any meaningful way force individuals to affirm one belief over another? Right? This is the same with parenting. You can't force a religious belief or an ethical belief upon a child. I mean, you can make them comply, but because you force it upon them doesn't mean they are going to believe it. While Locke's religious tolerance is to be praised, it is important to note that it did not extend to those who did not believe in God at all. He feared that the denial of divine existence would lead society into chaos. So he thinks there's different cultural understandings of divinity, but there can't be a rejection of divinity because that atheism, at least a hard atheism, that leads to kind of a certain moral disorder, he thinks will lead to a social chaos that cannot be sustained. Mysticism in general, and Jewish mysticism in particular, is also for, completely foreign to Locke's method of philosophy, of course. Locke's scientific worldview ruled out the possibility, as mysticism suggests that, through our inner lives, we can transcend we can know God, we can cleave to the divine, and we can travel, so to speak, spiritually and intellectually. For Locke, the only way to gain knowledge is through real-world experience. And there's no such thing as knowledge that transcends our physical experience of the world. Don't tell me your meditation is teaching you something, right? Don't tell me that your abstract class um, is teaching you something. You need to go out and touch it and feel it. Locke did believe in internal senses in addition to our external ones. While Locke did reject innate ideas, he did not reject the notion that humans have innate capacities, such as abilities for reason and perception. But this was still all based on experience, not revelation or divine gifts given to our consciousness. So let me repeat that. 
Today, we think of the senses as all physical, by and large, external encounters. He does have a notion of senses that are internal, right? Otherwise, there could be no learning. If there, if all senses were external, how would that actually translate to learning? There is an internal sense, but that's very different than, than simply innate ideas, a priori, a priori. And while Locke's main source of knowledge was human experience, Jews, of course, rely heavily on revelation and tradition, right? Even liberal Judaism has some sense um, of kind of a revelatory um, or traditional notion that's not irrational, but irrational to some degree. So how might the notion of Torah fit into his thought? I'd say that people around the world, by and large, have some sense of right from wrong without the clear text of the Torah. There is some basic level of innate universal morality. Torah then reinforces and deepens our already ingrained sense of right and wrong. To be sure, there's many facets to morality and humans around the world disagree greatly about complex moral issues. Nonetheless, our psychological reactions of guilt, shame, and pride, to name just a few, are commonly predictable emotions based upon human experiences in moral dilemmas. Right? Universal, excuse me, humans universally experience common emotions. And those emotions might lead us to different um, moral conclusions, right? How does shame translate into our moral defenses and moral offenses, our moral obligations? Many different approaches to that, of course. Um, and certainly in, in Eastern culture, um, how shame is related to differently than in the West. And do we have obligations to bring shame upon another versus obligations to avoid shaming others who are doing moral wrongs? Locke's emphasis on empiricism and reason is similar to Maimonides and other proponents of rationalism within the Jewish tradition. As Maimonides makes clear, the Torah cannot contradict reason or contradict what our senses tell us to be true. And so revelation does not undermine reason or empiricism, but rather provide a spiritual underpinning and ethical reinforcement for what can already be ascertained through reason. Additionally, Torah provides a comprehensive system and way of life that only encompasses all that we do. We know rest is important, so the tradition gives us Shabbat. We know that food is important, so the Torah gives us kashrut. We know families are indispensable, so the Torah gives us laws about around how to maintain a family. However, there are voices in the, in the Jewish tradition that would disagree with Locke's belief that human beings are born as blank as a blank slate, and there's a great Jewish debate around the nature of a child. Is a child a wild beast that needs to be tamed and conditioned, or does a child have an inherent gifts for for parents and teachers to discover? This raises fascinating questions around theories of education. Should innate knowledge be harnessed and innate goodness be strengthened? Or must we embrace rigidity to cultivate good behavior when there is no strong natural inclination for it? According to the Midrash, while still in the womb, a child does acquire knowledge only to lose it upon birth 
when at last the time arrives for the child's entrance into the world, the angel comes to them, the child in the womb, and says, at a certain hour, your time will come to enter the light of the world. The child pleads with the angel, saying, why do you wish me to go out into the, into the light of the world? The angel replies, you know, my child, that you were formed against your will, and against your will you will be born, and against your will you will die, and against your will you are destined to give an accounting before the kings of the king of kings, the holy one, be blessed. Nevertheless, the child remained unwilling to leave. <laughs> Think of the 41 or 42 week birth. That one does not want to get out of there. And so the angel struck the child with the candle that was burning at his head. Thereupon the child went out into the light of the world, though against their will. Upon going out, the infant forgot everything they had witnessed and everything they knew. Why does the child cry out on leaving their mother's womb? Because the place wherein they had been at rest and at ease was irretrievable, and because of the condition of the world into which, into which they must enter. Of course, those of us who have been in the room for a childbirth cry so deeply when we hear that cry, not crying out of sadness of the cry of a child, but crying out of joy to hear that child's cry, knowing they're alive. Because a still, with all the traumas of a stillbirth, when we don't hear that cry. But the Midrash understands that cry to not be because of the coldness and the light um, of birth, um, but out of this confusion of the child, unable to now retrieve the deep wisdom they knew only moments earlier, shocked at having no idea who they are or where they are, or understanding much at all, according to this Midrash. The Talmud goes so far as to say that not only is the child aware while still in the womb, but that it learns Torah in the womb. Here's what it says over here in the Babylonian Talmud of Nida. And a candle is lit for it above its head, the fetus in its mother's womb. And it gazes from one end of the world to the other as it is stated, when it, God's lamp shined above my head, and by God's light I walk through darkness. And do not wonder how one can see from one end of the world to the other, as a person can sleep here in this location and see a dream that takes place in a place as distant as Spain. And a fetus is taught the entire Torah while in the womb, as it is stated. And God taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And it also states, as I was in the days of my youth, when the converse of God was upon my tent. It has been noted by Rabbi Soloveitchik and others that this rabbinic tale bears a striking resemblance to Plato's idea of Anamnesis, as found in the dialogue of Mino. According to Plato, the soul is eternal and therefore can serve as a source of innate knowledge for a person. Therefore, when one is learning 
One is, in fact, rediscovering knowledge one already knows. Rabbi Soloveitchik takes this idea and applies it to the act of Torah study. Here's what he writes over here. The Jew studying Torah is like the amnesia victim who tries to reconstruct from fragments the beautiful world they once experienced. In other words, by learning Torah, man returns to his own self. Man finds himself and advances towards a charted, illuminated, and speaking I existence. Once he finds himself, he finds redemption. That's why it, learning is not a first discovery, but a returning to what one already knew. Not only is Torah study an act of rediscovery, rediscovering oneself, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, went so far as to argue that a person's soul will teach them. We're not just blank slates. Instead, there is divine knowledge within all people that we know only unconsciously and are tasked with rediscovering fully. Overall, Locke, Locke did a service to the Jews. Untested, accepted knowledge can lead to fundamentalism. He wants to challenge all of that. If there's no marketplace of ideas, there's no ability to offer proofs or counterproofs. Locke's skepticism of what we take for granted provides room for discovering what is not already known. Judaism has always embraced the humility around what we know. And while the tradition would reject the idea that science is the source of absolutely all knowledge, it would reject even more the idea that innate knowledge gives us all we need to know. Locke gave the world a framework for accepting debate and disagreement. Friends, to conclude here, Judaism as a pluralistic tradition can embrace Plato and the idea of the objective good. And we, and we say there are some things we know innately. At the same time, it can embrace Locke and say there are many things we can't know innately, but only through science. Judaism has room for both the transcendent or absolute and the cumulative knowledge, development of knowledge. There is space in Judaism for inherent knowledge, learned knowledge, and knowledge that comes from revelation and tradition. How fortunate we are to not necessarily need to choose between all of this. So friends, in addition to hearing your thoughts and questions and pushback, I also ask you the question, how do you feel you know things most deeply in your own life when um, at times of confusion? Okay, I would love to hear from you if you would like to unmute yourself and weigh in. Hi, Cheryl, and then Steve. Hi. Cheryl, then Steve, then Eileen. Um, we, we've always learned that Judaism provides for free will, that we have free will. So how, where does that come into play with um, the, I mean, we, we have choice, we make choices, and we make choices, and we're allowed to make choices because we have been given free will. And so I just, you know, when you were talking about a right, you know, human rights and all of that kind of thing, I, I was thinking the people make choices. Does that have anything to do with their accumulated knowledge or their absolute knowledge? Mm. Beautiful. Uh, Cheryl, just to understand a little better, tell me a little bit more about how you were 
connecting that thought as well to the human rights conversation as well? Well, when we, when at the very beginning, when we were talking about, well, it's a political, it's political, uh, my, my choice, you know, in this anonymous poll was mm. there is no, you know, was mm. the number three. Um, and, uh, you know, that free will, I mean, it's like, it's coming from inside your, um, your form does, you know, the, the kind of person you are based on either your accumulated knowledge or maybe your experiences. So to go along with Locke's whole philosophy, um, it gives you also the tools for, um, free will. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, Cheryl. That's awesome. You know, um, there's really only one primary Jewish thinker who completely rejects free will. His name was the Ishbitzer Rebbe, and the Ishbitzer Rebbe um, believed that all free will was a uh, misperception, even a deception, um, and that humans have no freedom at all. Um, but he is a huge anomaly, and uh, virtually every other thinker, liberal and traditional from all eras, understands free will and free will as being the basis for human accountability. We are accountable. We are responsible because we are indeed free. It's less, the free will is less um, an, uh, an, an assumption because they have discovered it and more because they are sure that we are responsible and want to emphasize that point. And without free will, that responsibility is gone. And part of the, str the strict commitment to justice is also built upon this notion that even people with all factors against them who make bad choices in their life still have freedom, right? One's poverty is not an excuse. One's race or gender is not an excuse. One's um, trauma as a child is not an excuse, we are still free to make moral choices, even if everything has been stacked against us. Um, now, of course, those are mitigating factors because those are real. Um, those are real. The choices one has, um, you know, present to them in, in deep poverty versus riches are very different. Nonetheless, there's still a freedom. Now we go to this point that Cheryl brings up. Well, how free are we really if, if what we know was planted in us innately? If we, if all of our knowing is innate knowing through our soul, through our mind, we are not a tabula rasa. We already know what's right or good. In what sense am I free, right? In that sense, my freedom is limited to do the good or don't do the good. My freedom is not to actually decide what is good because that's already innate in me. So freedom is very limited. And the pre-moderns understood it exactly that way. Freedom is about doing what I already know to be good. It has nothing to do with discovering what actually is good. And in modernity, we see that shift. So Cheryl is touching on a very important point. And so now getting in, now what if it's about experience? What about if free will, if, if it's ultimately tied to my experience? Well, that's also limited. Because if I grow up in 19th century Chinese, Chinese village, and I never, never leave my 19th century Chinese village, well, how much of the world have I experienced? If I grow up in Watts in South LA and I never leave three miles, right? And I'm in an all black community um, in Watts and I never even made it to the beach six miles away because my family can't even afford, afford a bus ticket, right? Um, 
how, how, my experience is how limited are that? If I grow up in the North Shore of Chicago in an all-white Jewish upper-class neighborhood, right? Um, and my experience is limited to that that worldview, right? Um, or I think I've experienced everything because I'm on social media and I hear everyone screaming. So I think I'm a cosmopolitan <laughs> and I know it all, right? Nonetheless, my experience is still limited to my my own experience. And so how free am I to choose beyond what I've experienced? So now comes Locke and says, reason is the key to unlock the door to freedom, right? The people who are not free are people who are relying upon their innate knowing. The people who are not free are not going beyond their um, natural experiences that they've been conditioned to have. The free person is going to challenge all of that knowing and all of those forms of experience in order to come to understand something more deeply. And in exploring those tensions, that will ultimately unlock my freedom. As we're going to see in the existentialists later, the existentialists have a much broader sense of what our freedom is going to entail and what needs to be questioned as well. So um, as that relates to the human rights point, um, yeah, um, you know, the the, the human rights uh, part is a problem because where does this even emerge from? Um, these rights that we argue for today and who's ultimately responsible to deliver those rights? Um, and, and do I myself need to work harder to acquire them? Does my government give them to me? Is there some universe, you know, um, global uh, political body that needs to ensure them for me? Is it my family and community? Um, or are they not there really at all? And we just live in a brutish world where we can argue about human rights for whatever we want, but there is no real claim to it. And how does the human rights discourse limit or expand a sense of freedom? Okay, so much more to say there. So, Cheryl, I'm so glad you opened that up for us. Let's go to Steve and then Eileen. Thank you very much. I I believe that much of our lives are the result of things innate, that we are born with the desire to create and build things. We're born with the desire to connect with other people. And I strongly believe, and I know the wiring goes wrong at times, that we're born with a desi desire to be compassionate, create, connect, and be compassionate. That might mean that I am not free, I'm not sure, based on what we were discussing, but that's that's my belief. And we embellish these, the way we, we interpret the desire to create and connect uh, has to do with the uniqueness of each of our personalities. We do it a little bit differently. Second, um, can there be no morality without religion? I believe there can be morality, morality without religion. Uh, I think Sam Harris uh, is goes out of his way to to uh, talk about that in every one of his podcasts. Uh, but I, I I do believe so much in the innate, and I believe in the goodness of people that that I I do think there can be morality. And number three, would you say say that there has been an evolution uh, of of political uh, of philosophical thought, or has there been an expansion? I'm not even sure if I know what I'm asking because they might be the same thing. And would you say that in Jewish thought, 
there has been an evolution of thinking to where we are now from where we were then, or is it an expansion? Oh, I am so happy, Steve. Thank you. I'm so happy with all this. Okay. So let me start. I'm going to go in the reverse order. And then I'd love to hear others on this as well. So the evolution of thinking, yes and no. Let's start with the no. Today, we have religious settlers, religious extremists in the West Bank who actually think we should um, burn Palestinian villages, who actually think we should not rely upon the IDF to protect us, but should take vigilante justice into our own hands because they read the Torah literally. And the Torah, if you read it literally, has some pretty problematic stuff in there around um, how we're going to relate to the neighboring societies around us. Why, sh should we wipe them out if they're a threat to us? Can they be totally distrusted? We're talking about a group of religious fundamentalists who looks at the same beautiful text that many of us look at and find deep inspiration and finds a license for violence. Now, let me be clear. I, um, I love those religious settlers. I, I know them very well. I used to live among them. I lived in the caravans in the West Bank for years. I know these people. Some of them are some of the most kind people I know. And as, as all complicated people, people aren't just good or evil. These are complicated people. Um, and the high majority of settlers are not those people we're reading about in the news right now. The high majority of settlers are actually speaking out against that minority. So we should be careful not to equate settlers with religious extremist settlers who we see now in the news doing these things. Big difference. Nonetheless, that small fringe faction, I think our job is to uh, say they're reading the same text we are. And that's the legitimate read. And it's a read we reject. And so my short answer is, right, that's why I don't like when, when the Pope said something like, oh, you know, people doing evil things, they're not real Christians. No, nope, they're Christians. They're finding inspiration from Christianity. They're just doing it wrong. I'm not, not, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing it right, but we need to reject it. Or when Muslims say that Muslim terrorists are not really Muslims, right? They're, this is not really Islam. No, you need to own that Islam has things in it that are, that are really harmful as well, right? You can't say that's not Islam. So too, Judaism has things in it, right, that are there. And we can't say that's not Judaism. We need to actually um, speak out against it and own it. Um, so anyways, ah, getting riled up here. So that said, so yes, there are people who do not want to evolve thinking of Judaism. Um, they want to say that biblical Judaism is still Judaism today. There was no, that all these eras of reinterpretation and of modernity and reformation can be dismissed to return back to the people of the book. That said, virtually all of Judaism embraces, aside from some fringe elements, a notion of evolution. That's actually one of the most beautiful sides of Judaism, the sense that everything has been reinterpreted and continues to be. And um, even the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, believe that so deeply. The ultra-Orthodox, in fact, believe it in some ways even more deeply than liberal Jews, because they hold, we can't rely upon a position 100 years ago. We have to hold a, a, the position of today 
the the rabbinic authorities of today I'm bound by. I can't go look at the Shulchan Aruch or the Talmud or hold by that, right? Liberal Jews say, oh, I found something in the Talmud. That's good for me. Maimonides some, said something that's good for me. The ultra-Orthodox reject that. They say, no, we need the most recent thinking. Is only the most recent thinking is authoritative, right? Liberal Jews say immigrant rights because the Torah says to protect the stranger. Ultra-Orthodox say, the Torah says that. Who, who cares? It's what my Rebbe today says. I don't care what the Torah says. So people misunderstand that. They think the ultra-Orthodox are, are, are fundamentalists about the text. They're not at all. They're not at all convinced when we tell them, love the stranger, the Torah says it. What are you talking about? My Rebbe doesn't say that. I hold by what my, my rabbi today says. Okay, so that's the third point of Steve. And I think that this is one of the beautiful things about Judaism, this notion that it is always evolving. And yet what that evolution means, means very different things to all of us. Now, to your second one, do, can there be more morality without religion? Oh, we can revisit our our Dostoevsky friends, brothers of Karamazov. Oh, what, Karamazov? Is that what they're called? Uh, yeah. Somebody write in the chat. Um, but yes, this this wonderful book of um, of those who reject God, those who reject religion, can they be moral? And that great debate back in Dostoevsky. The easy answer that I think we all know is, of course, there can exist morality without religion. And this might be a little controversial, but I view religion as a tool. You can use that tool for good or use it for bad. It is a technology. You can use Facebook to put out inspiring messages and lift people up on their birthday and inspire people. And you can use Facebook for lies and for hate, right? Social media is not inherently good or bad. Social media is another tool that can be used for good and bad. Religion is a technology. Religion is used for hate and for belittling, for racism and sexism. It's used to tear down people, to, to tear down reason. And religion is used to spread kindness and love and build community and help foster learning and bring, bring sanctity into life. Um, and so, um, like most things, I think that that's true. Today, we use, we talk about things as inherently good. We use words like family, like family is just a pure word. Family can be abusive and family can tear down people. Family can be one of the most powerful ways um, to maintain the good. And so family is another technology. Um, so we shouldn't talk about things like family values. We talk about if you grow up in a family that had terrible values, family values is not what we want. If you grow up in a family that fosters love and compassion, it's, a, it's beautiful. And so we have to get beyond these simple languages of, oh, we need to return to religious values. We often hear, you know, Judeo-Christian values. Well, which Judeo, you know, it's such a political move. Which Judeo-Christian values are you talking about? Are you talking about anti-LGBT uh, Judeo-Christian values? Are you talking about um, Judeo-Christian values of compassion and love for foreigners, Right. Okay, now to go to your first point, I'm sorry this is so long-winded, but Steve, you open up so many beautiful cans here. Um, so this question of, of what is innate. Um, if we believe in reincarnation, we know there's a lot innate stuff in us. If we believe that humans have fundamental needs, we think there's a lot of innate stuff in us. If we believe, like Noam Chomsky, um, that language is innate in people, there are structures of language, um, then that's another conclusion. If we think like Steve, 
that compassion is innate to all beings. That leads us to different conclusions. And here's what I want to say. More important than any study about what is innate is our assumptions of what is innate tells us more about ourselves than about someone else, right? If we think people are innately selfish, that says a lot about about our experience, mm -hmm. our assumptions of the world. If we think people are innately compassionate, that changes the way we relate to people as well. So I think this is a great question to ask ourselves. When I run it, when I have a stranger in line in front of me, um, and because I'm buying coffee or or in the checkout line at, at at the grocery store, how do I perceive that person? Do I perceive that person as as someone who's a victim or as someone who's an oppressor? Do I view them as someone who is struggling to get by and deserves compassion? Do I do I view them as someone who is selfish and trying to cut the line? Do I view them as someone who's compassionate and is trying to do good today? Right? It, it's it's worth next time we encounter a stranger, almost meditate. I mean, you don't want to freak the person out, but stare at the person, stare at the person and say, what are my assumptions about this person in front of me? And is it different based upon their age? If it's a 15-year-old versus an 85-year-old, if they're black versus brown versus white, if they're male or female, if they have tattoos or don't, right? What are my assumptions about this person and what is innate to them, right? To their being. What a great, what a great, what a great practice. Thank you, Steve. Okay, Eileen, over to Eileen and then Lauren and then Aglaia. I thought your initial question had to do with learning. And what I was going to say is, I think we learn a lot from our senses. Having said that, today with artificial intelligence, we can no longer rely on what we see on TV or on screens or on Facebook as being real and actual because the truth can be manufactured. And if the truth can be manufactured, then our whole life can be uh a manufactured reality, which in truth has no bearing on actual experience. Great, Eileen. So where, where does that lead you um, as to what we need to do today? We need to keep our kids off of social media until they're 15 or 16. We need <laughs> to keep our kids off of phones until they're 15 or 16 until they have developed some ability to think. And that really doesn't occur until they're in their 20s. Mm. However, these parents who throw a screen at a three-year-old toddler are not helping the toddler. So as a grandmother, I'm proud to say my kids do not get to go on more than 30 minutes, and that's only after they've done their assigned reading for the day. Um, how do we as a society control this? I really don't know because it's pervasive. What can I do without overstepping boundaries by saying to a parent, you shouldn't, the parent is gonna laugh at me and ignore my saying. So 
I don't know. Suggestions? Yeah. Thank you, Eileen. I'm going to leave most of what you said for others to chat or speak up on. Um, and I'll just add that I, I've made, made clear to my kids that um, when they turn 75, I'm going to let them use social media. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be regulating it until then. But <laughs> but um, yeah, this question of what is the real is um, is very powerful. And the only thing I'll, I'll say for now is flipping it from the child to our later years. I think one of the, th there's so many beautiful things to aging. So many beautiful things to aging. But one of the scary things about aging is cognitive decline, mm -hmm. in particular memory loss. Mm -hmm. And um, when we enter that realm um, and we start to wonder what's real and, and um, what we know, and, and, and um, sometimes we're unaware that this is happening in our lives and sometimes we're very aware, and um, what we need are compassionate people around us to help us understand what's real, just as a 10-year-old a um, doesn't need to necessarily be thrown into intense social media groups where people are bullying each other and, and, and everything else um, and judging each other. So too, just like they need a compassionate parent to protect them from these spaces, we need to compassionately protect people who are experiencing cognitive decline or memory loss to help them understand what's real. Um, and um, yeah, and so we just got to rebuild our communities and our families and our societies to compassionately take care of each other when when what is real and what is true is being challenged so deeply politically and through technologies um, and through AI um, and the like. So thank you. Thank you, Eileen. Okay, over to you, Lauren. Going to human rights, I chose God. Why? Because it comes from Bereshit, Bereshit. So I was taking a class um, on Yitz Greenberg's new book that has not yet been published called The Triumph of Life. It was with Hadar. And I'm just quoting for this because I think this is where human rights comes from. One of Judaism's most radical teachings for the world is the idea that humans were created in the image of God. Rabbi Greenberg believes the Torah stresses that human beings are created in the image of God to teach us that all people share the following three dignities, infinite value, equality, and uniqueness. Now, infinite value, equality, uniqueness, that gives you human rights, that gives you tolerance that, that means that each and every human being in their own unique way is valuable and is deserving of rights. Unfortunately, in some societies, that's not followed, but morally, philosophically, as a Jew, um, it has to be. Unfortunately, we need political measures and education to keep it there. But, but really, I think if, if everybody really, really thought about what does it mean in creation that God created each person and each person in their new, own unique way is deserving of, of tolerance, of compassion, et cetera, that's where it comes from. Thank so. you, Lauren. Very powerful. Um, yeah, so much to say there. And one of the profound questions I'm sure many of us grapple with um, as one of the legacies we want to leave in the world is how could we ensure a, never a Holocaust never happens again? How could we ensure genocides never happen again? What what do we need to do? Is it is it 
Is it international relations? Is it strengthening the UN? Is it strengthening the nation state, right? Is it education around innate human being value, right? What do we have to do for people to get this? Now, going back to Steve's comment earlier, for some religious people, it is the, we have to spread religion. Because the only way people can possibly believe in fundamental human rights is if they believe there's a God and a God bestowed these human rights on people because there's no other way to make the claim they might suggest. Now, other people who are atheists might say, no, we can come to this conclusion without necessarily divinity, right? Some kind of other way of making a leap of faith into believing human beings have this. Now, to go to, to Rav Yitz, as you mentioned, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, yes, he thinks Selim Elohim Humans created in the image of God means these three things. All human beings have infinite value. All human beings are equal. And every human being is unique based upon that commitment. So how do we spread such an idea in the world, ultimately? that, And is that, um, and what form of innate knowing is that, right? What is what, what aspect of the human being different than an animal makes it that we are such that we um, have this infinite value. That's a hard, that's a really hard question of where to root those human rights and um, and how to convince people in the world of that. And as we're going to see, it's not only the Taliban or Hamas or the like who think we can kill innocent civilians in the name of a higher good because those innocent civilians don't have inherent infinite value. It is also at risk in Western philosophy. As we're gonna see with thinkers later, like Peter Singer, Peter Singer does not believe human beings have innate dignity. He, as a radical utilitarian, thinks our job is to reduce suffering. That has to do with maximizing pleasure in the world and minimizing suffering. It has nothing to do with innate human dignity. And so even in very noble Western ideas, we're gonna see this notion of Tzalem Elohim under attack. Okay, Aglaya, you get a last comment. If you can keep it to a minute, and then I'll get a last minute to wrap us up. Um, um, that would be wonderful. And I'm sorry we didn't get to so many others here as well. Okay, everyone's going to get mad at me for saying this, though, but that's why I put that quote from John Locke in, that little you know gem from John Locke in the um, chat box. But the short version of the story is, is that, um, yeah, this guy is talking about all these things like right, life, liberty, and property. And then he basically says, every freeman of Carolina shall have absolute authority over his Negro slaves. So the short version of this um, comment was going to be, well, if I'm teaching John Locke to students, okay, um, the way that I have to go about it, though, the best way that I've found to go about it is um one dwelling on how much of a screw up he was isn't exactly going to help you learn anything necessarily because then you have to reflect on how you're a screw up and everything else like that but that's you know neither here nor there but the other thing though is that um when it comes to human nature and whether or not people are innately you know good or bad or innately neither um i think the one of the answers that needs to be considered is humans are innately both good and bad and so because of that though there's a lot when you get into the free will aspect of it um yeah it's on what you choose yep. the other thing though is about human rights um we're dealing with if we're talking about human rights we're dealing with a concept that is very very um 
historically very complex to get into what the history of human rights actually are. So, yeah, I mean, we might oversimplify it and say, you know, in religion, it says all humans are created in the image of God and everything else like that. But humans did not, people did not always translate that into this concept of human rights. So that's where it gets into, well, our free will and are we innately both good and evil? Well, you know, how long did it, how, what did it take to get to this concept of human rights? Yes, beautiful. And boy, boy, could we spend a lot of time discussing that together? I mean, all these human rights that were argued that were only for white men and did not include women and did not include people of color and did include people with disabilities and didn't include people in poverty and, and the like. And now the questions today of which aspects of human rights also are extended to animals and which not, which ones will be extended to robots? to the extent that robots may achieve a, a certain level of sophistication um, and internal experience even. And then to go back to Glay's great point, it's just astounding to us that people with such noble ideas could still justify slave ownership, right? Even in modernity, over and over, could still justify the disenfranchisement of, of women and so many other related issues. And this, to go back to the social media, I think is one of the 10, one of the many um, aspects of the great threat of social media. What is that? That we believe on social media that we are righteous. We are on the right side. And what does that prevent us from doing? It prevents us from actually challenging, just like people thought they were on the righteous side while they justified slave ownership. It, it, it prevents us from breaking out of the own systems of oppression that we ourselves justified today. Do we really think People aren't going to look at us in 50 years and think we're barbarians. We think we've just made it to the end of progress and all moral progress is here in this moment. And they're going to look back at us in 50 years thinking we were the, the most enlightened ones, right? Of course. And what the social media echo chamber does say, ah, you're, you're, you're saying all the, all the right things politically. You're the righteous one. The evil's out there and just be a righteous warrior for good, right? And all the things that you're justifying are just fine. But indeed, I think what Locke is pushing us to do, even though he can uh, self had his barriers, just like we do, is to say, where am I still getting it wrong? How do I step out of the group think and ask myself where I'm still getting it wrong? Friends, I love thinking about this stuff with you each and every day, each and every week, wishing you a beautiful, healthy day and can't wait to see you next week. Have, uh, uh, next week is July 4th. Oh, you're right. July 4th. We're off for July 4th. Thank you so much. So July 11th. We'll see you July 11th.